they have energy like that on a Wednesday evening. If it was me, I would have been singing a couple lullabies, and that would have been about it. It's been a week. All right, so, hey, we are going to be in Isaiah 28 tonight. We, um, we just finished that s- the section that we, we were calling um, Isaiah's Apocalypse. And that was, you know, about a four or five chapter section all about Isaiah's visions of uh, the end times events. So we're finally moving on out of that, although he's not done talking about the end times, of course. Um, and now he's, it's another lengthy section. It's from here to like chapter 34 or 35, um, where he's going to focus on some judgments, some more woes that we, like we covered a while back. Uh, that are coming for the Jews and the Assyrians. Uh, but he's also going to be in the middle of all that making promises uh, about Israel's future. So um, it's not all bad news, right? But uh, before we get into it, let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll, uh, we'll dive right in. Lord, we thank you uh, again this evening for allowing us to be together. Uh, we thank you that uh, uh, we were able to gather together on Sunday and, and, and celebrate uh, the work you did on the cross, and tonight we're, um, uh, we're, we're thankful that, uh, that you spoke through your prophets as you did through Isaiah. We just pray that you would help us to understand it and uh, know you better through this study, and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so, nothing to it but to do it. Let's go Isaiah 28, verse 1. It says, Woe to the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim. Remember, Ephraim is Ephraim was a tribe of Israel whose inheritance was a big section of um, of the northern part of Israel. So, so God often used that name to describe all of the northern kingdom, or Samaria, is is how it's described in the New Testament. So, when He says Ephraim, it's just a way of of saying everybody in the northern kingdom. So he says, Woe to the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim, and to the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is at the head of the fertile valley of those who are overcome with wine, or those who overindulge in wine. So the northern kingdom, uh, we've been talking mainly about the southern kingdom for a while, but the northern kingdom... um, was a little more financially prosperous than the southern kingdom. Uh, and they were a little f- full of themselves. It's kind of how, the, how the, that kingdom came to be in the first place, was, you know, there was a, a schism between these, these two uh, parts of the country, and, and a guy uh, decided that he would make his own place to worship so people wouldn't have to go to Jerusalem, and, and, you know, it was a prideful move, right? And we don't need to go and worship the way God said. We'll just do it our own way. So that's kind of how that part of, or that kingdom started in the first place. So it's no surprise that that's how it's continuing during Isaiah's time. So they're prosperous, but they're a little full of themselves, don't have great judgment, uh, and it's going to lead to trouble, right? So verse 2, it says, Behold, the Lord has a strong and mighty agent. As a storm of hail, a tempest of destruction, like a storm of mighty overflowing waters, 
He has cast it down to the earth with his hand. The proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim is trodden underfoot. So they're too proud to listen to the Lord is, is basically his point, right? And they're so proud that we know from history they're going to fall to the Assyrians in pretty short order. And, and I think it's 722 B.C. is when it happens. So it's not long after Isaiah's writing this stuff. But you notice twice now he's, he's called them drunkards. And, you know, maybe they did have a, a drinking problem. I think it, that's not the main point here, although we're going to talk a little bit more about that later. But what we do know is they're prosperous to the point of being overindulgent in everything. It's uh, almost like a, another society I know of, you know, where we, uh, we are so prosperous that uh, we're the only country on earth whose poor people are fat. <laughs> Think about that. <laughs> like, that's not an option in most of the world. Um, but that seems to be a, a thing that happens, right? Is w- the more you have, the more you will abuse it and overindulge. Uh, th- that's why we, we don't buy multiple bags of Doritos at our house, because... If we buy one bag, it's gone by tomorrow. If we buy four bags, they're gone by tomorrow. <laughs> so, I have nothing to do with it. Verse 4 says, uh, And the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is at the head of the fertile valley, will be like the first ripe fig prior to summer, which one sees, and as soon as it is in his hand, he swallows it. So fig trees, they produce most of their fruit um, like toward the end of summer, beginning of fall. Uh, but a, a few pieces will ripen in early summer. And, you know, they're tasty, but they're gone quickly, right? There's just a few. You, you pick them, and they're gone. And so I think he's basically saying, look, you're enjoying all of your blessings right now, uh, Judah, uh, but, or Samaria, but you have no time for me, right? You're enjoying all these blessings. You have no time for me, and this isn't going to last long, right? This prosperous time in your history is not going to last long. Um, Great difficulty is coming. Verse 5, it says, In that day the Lord of hosts will become a beautiful crown and a glorious diadem to the remnant of his people. Now, did you notice that phrase, beginning of that verse? What did he say? In that day. Remember, that's a, anytime we see that in Isaiah, we know he's referring to a future event. It doesn't always mean necessarily the end times, but in that day is a reference to a time when God is going to intervene in a visible, uh, you know, in a powerful, visceral way in, in the affairs of mankind. So in that day, the Lord of hosts will become a beautiful crown and a glorious diadem to the remnant of his people. You might want to underline that in your Bible. A spirit of justice for him who sits in judgment, a strength to those who repel the onslaught at the gate. So you notice he's, he's talking about how bad things are. There's going to be judgment, and, but the Lord is going to take care of a remnant. Uh, there's going to be a few people. God always has a remnant. 
He only says a few people who are, who are trying to follow him. So you might assume during this time that he's describing that the remnant is made up of probably the people that you know, are offering the sacrifices, the priests and, and the prophets, right? Uh, the, the professional believers. Uh, the guys whose whole day is filled up with the things of God. Obviously, they're following God closely, right? Well, obviously not, right? That's not what's happening. Verse 7, it says, And these also reel with wine and stagger from strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They're confused by wine. They stagger from strong drink. They reel while having visions. They totter when rendering judgment. For all the tables are full of filthy vomit without a single clean place. So these people, they got so loose with their standards that the priests and the prophets were hammered while they're doing ministry. Uh, so he says that the prophets were drunk while they saw visions. I bet they saw some visions if they were that drunk. Uh, <laughs> the priests are, are that real that he kept saying. They're, they're staggering around while they're making decisions and performing sacrifices. And it got so bad they even vomited on the sanctified tables. So the whole place is just unclean. And I couldn't help it uh, when I was reading this. I thought of, there's another story uh, a little earlier in the Old Testament uh, about two guys, Nadab and Abihu. They're two of the first priests. And uh, the priesthood looks pretty promising for, for Nadab and Abihu, the you know, the holy God of Israel has personally set them apart to be among the first priests. And they've got this family pedigree. Uh, Aaron, the first high priest, is their dad. Moses is their uncle. That's, that's a pretty good position to be in. And in Leviticus chapters like 7 through 10, we get all these descriptions of them getting ready to be, to, you know, to launch their ministry. Uh, they're dressed in fresh robes and sashes, and, and they have this turban on their heads with like a golden plate that boasts about how, uh, you know, holy is the Lord. And uh, then they, they took blood from uh, the offering, from their ordination offering, and um, put it on their ears and and their thumbs, and their toes, and all these things to prepare them, right, for the ministry of the priesthood. And then in, in Leviticus 9, they see their dad and their uncle basically consecrating um, these articles of worship, and they call down, uh, the Lord sends fire down from heaven on the, the sacrifice that they offer. And everyone is amazed, and obviously. Then in Leviticus 10, this is what happens. Verse 1. 
It says, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans, and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. So their first day on the job, and they, well, they got fired. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That's the only reason I told that story, so I could say that now. So people debate about what the strange fire was, but wh- what we do know, if you read the, you know, the whole chapter, um, well, we'll read a couple more verses. Verse 3, it says, Then Moses said to Aaron, It is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored. And so Aaron, therefore, kept silent. So Moses reminds Aaron, God warned us that we need to treat him as holy and not take this lightly. And Aaron just is like, I I can't say anything. So we find out in that chapter that, um, you know, they were, they kind of forgot what they had known and they got a little high on their own supply, right? They're they're more into themselves. They wanted a little taste of the glory that their dad and their uncle had. But there is even more to it. In verse 8, it says, The Lord then spoke to Aaron, saying, Do not drink wine or strong drink, neither you nor your sons with you, when you come into the tent of meeting, so that you will not die. It is a perpetual statute throughout your generation. I don't think that was the only issue, but Aaron's sons were drinking while they were trying to lead people in worship. While they, and while they were drinking, they decided uh, they wanted to build their name rather than the Lord's. You know, Paul says uh, in the New Testament, he tells us that we're to be filled with the Spirit uh, and not spirits, right? Not with uh, alcohol. He says that is dissipation. In other words, it it takes away rather than filling up. And some of us have probably experienced that in our lives where alcohol took away some relationships or took away some memories or just took away a part of your life. Now, uh, you know, we people always, this is always a hot topic, you know, because some people say, well, I have the liberty to drink, and yeah, that's true. The Bible does say that you can. It uh, doesn't say that you should. Um, if, you know, if you want your best life, it, you would be best served to never touch a drop of alcohol. Um, but it doesn't mean that you can't. It doesn't mean that you can't have it. Um, but is it what's best for you? No. I mean, it's not healthy for you. And I think we can all agree that we don't make our best decisions under the influence of anything, right? So 
if you're trying to lead people, trying to lead a family, trying to lead uh, a, a church or a, um, employees or whatever, it's best if you have a clear head and make clear decisions. We can all agree on that. So I find, I find this really funny. The highest rate of alcohol consumption in the United States, and it's not even close, is Washington, D.C. So, so we make our best decisions when we're not under the influence. And the people who are making the biggest decisions are the drunkest people in the country. So, just say it. <laughs> uh, but yeah, people always love to say, yeah, that's why you can't drink. I'm like, well, no, that's not what the Bible says. But it does say, don't overindulge in things. That's, the, that's what was pro- the problem with the, the northern kingdom. Uh, Isaiah 28, verse 9, it says, uh, to, to whom would he teach knowledge? And to whom would he interpret the message, right? He says, the whole country's drunk. The priests and the prophets are drunk. So who is the Lord supposed to send a message to? He says, those just weaned from milk, those just taken from the breast, those apparently are the only pure people in the country are, are little kids, Verse 10, he says, for he says, now this expression um, is, it was a, a, a commonly known expression at the time for how you taught kids, right? He says, order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there. And so the point is, like, you know, that's how you teach kids as you build one thing on another, with repetition and more repetition, and you look for opportunities to teach them, right? You don't just stand in front of them and drill it into them all the time. You, you have teachable moments. So he says the only choice left are kids, are babies. Order on order, line on line. So he's, he's talking about, you know, the way to grow, the way to learn is to have a, a system, we, that's why we, we teach, you know, systematically. That's why here at this church, we prefer to teach verse by verse through a book. Doesn't mean that ha- is how it has to be, but we, f- we feel like that's the best way to, to learn, right? Is to not just learn things randomly out of context. Let's see what this whole book is about. Um, verse 11, he says, Indeed, he will speak to this people through stammering lips and a foreign tongue. He says, since you won't learn systematically, since you just want to party, uh, you're going to have to learn in a different way. He, uh, a foreign people, the Assyrians, are going to be my instrument to teach you. Right? If, you won't lear- if you won't learn it properly, you're going to learn it from people who don't even speak your language. Right? Because they're going to be my instrument of judgment. And so if you won't learn it in peace, you're going to learn it in the midst of the storm. That is not the way you want to learn it. Verse 12, he who said to them, here is rest, give rest to the weary, and here is repose. But they would not listen. Right? He says, I've been tell- offering you the peaceful route, but you won't listen. Verse 13, so the word of the Lord to them will be, Order on order, order on order, 
line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there, that they may go and stumble backward, be broken, snared, and taken captive. In other words, those simple truths of the Lord, they're going to look at that in a mocking way. It's like, that's for kids, right? I don't need to hear that. I've already heard that. And they're going to stumble and be snared. That is a real danger. And it's happened to me in my life, I know, where I've gone through a period where I've grown kind of bored with the word. Where, you know, you hear a sermon and you're like, I've... I've already heard this sermon. Now, I will say, Chris and I have bad memories, so there's a good chance that you really did hear part of that sermon before, right? We've probably used those illustrations before. Uh, But I still hear verses uh, preached on that I've read, that I've preached on, and someone will reveal like some new part of the, uh, you know, new truth that I didn't see before. Uh, So, you know, if you... These people are going to grow bored uh, with the word, feel like it's, it's not profound enough for them, and they fall backward. In Jesus' time, um, many people had that same attitude. When Jesus had his earthly ministry, they memorized words, but they didn't apply it. It didn't reach, you know, it didn't make that, that longest journey from the head to the heart. And so he taught in a different way. So different that his disciples ha- asked him, why do, you, why do you teach like this? And he said this in Matthew 13, verse 13. He says, therefore I speak to them in parables. Because while seeing, they do not see. And while hearing, they do not hear. And nor do they understand. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says you will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears, they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart and return, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears, because they hear. Paul put it another way in 1 Corinthians. He says it a few times, but in chapter 1, uh, verse 18, he says, The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Uh, It's a frustrating thing when um, you see the word just kind of bounce off of somebody, right? But you can't give up. You've got to keep sowing those seeds. And somebody else may come along and water it, and you never know when it's, it's going to take root and grow. But the word had gotten boring, and they are, they're getting snared because of it. So they're drunken, they're prideful, they have no fear of God, uh, and they're rejecting the simplest truths, the simplest teachings. So go back to Isaiah 28, verse 14. It says, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, O scoffers, who rule this people who are in Jerusalem. Now remember, Jerusalem is not in the northern kingdom. It's in the southern kingdom. So he's changed. He's talking about a different group now. Uh, He makes it clear he's talking to the people in the southern kingdom. And apparently they have a bunch of scoffers, a bunch of people that are skeptical, right? 
Verse 15, he says, Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we have made a pact. So in other words, they, they know they're in trouble, right? And they've made a deal. They're like, we don't have to worry because we made a deal with the devil, right? We don't have to worry because we made a deal with one of our enemies. The overwhelming scourge will not reach us when it passes by, for we have made falsehood our refuge, and we have concealed ourselves with deception. So they, they made some kind of scheming deal, and they're bragging about it. They've got this alliance, this treaty. And it turns out that the, the alliance they've made, we find out later, is with Egypt. Of all people. You know, the, the people that y- they used to be slaves to, that's who they made a deal with. Uh, and Isaiah says it's a covenant with death. Jeremiah tells us that uh, when the Babylonians besieged Jerusalem, uh, the Egyptians just turn around and head home. They don't even bother to try to fight for them. And so the Jews are destroyed and taken captive. So they found the truth to be boring, and instead they, they trusted in this lie, right? This, they just try to fool themselves that they've protected themselves. I was thinking about this story the other day where <clears throat> this old preacher is walking down the street and he sees this crowd of like 13-year-old boys and there's no wilder animal on the planet than a 13-year-old boy, you know. But he sees them all in a circle crowded around something and he's like, oh, this has got to be trouble. So he walks up and, and there's a dog in the, in the middle of the circle and he's worried they're going to you know, hurt this dog or abuse it. He says, what are you guys up to? And he says, well, no, we're, we're trying, you know, we all want this dog to be ours. Um, and so we're trying to decide who gets to take him home. And the way we decided is uh, whoever can tell the biggest lie gets to take the dog home. And the preacher's like, well, that's, that's a terrible idea. When I, why, when I was your age, I never lied. And the boy says, all right, give him the dog. So they, they had nothing to do with the story, but anyway. Uh, verse 16, it says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. Now, we don't have time tonight to devote a whole lot of time to this verse, but... Uh, Real quickly, in ancient times, the cornerstone was the, the starting point for any building, right? Uh, and it, it, it was the one stone that had to be true, had to be square, had to be, you know, everything was measured by it. In Ephesians 2, Romans 9, I think it's like verse 33, 1 Peter 2, Acts 4, uh, and Matthew 21, all of those portions in the New Testament refer to this cornerstone, this concept. Jesus is the cornerstone, right? He is the, the thing that everything is measured by. It's, you don't have a good foundation without a good cornerstone. And so, to put it simply, build your house on the Lord, not on sand, right? Not on 
things that are going to crumble and fall. And we're going to hit that concept again later in the book. But Isaiah is introducing it here. Verse 17, he says, I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the level. Then hail will sweep away the refuge of lies and the waters will overflow the secret place. Your covenant with death will be canceled. And your pact with Sheol will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, then you become its trampling place. As often as it passes through, it will seize you. For morning after morning, it will pass through any time during the day or night. And it will be sheer terror to understand what it means. And then this verse kind of helps clarify. He says, the bed is too short on which to stretch out. And the blanket is too small to wrap oneself in. So he says, basically, look, you guys have made your bed. Now you get to lie in it. And by the way, it's like a toddler bed, you know. You get a little blankie that it can't cover your feet and your, you know, you know that feeling, right? These people have built their, li- their lives on a lie. And he says, you will find no rest when you do that. Verse 21, he says, For the Lord will rise up as at, Mount, uh, as at Mount Perizim. He will be stirred up as in the valley of Gibeon. Uh, he's making reference to a couple different things in the Old Testament. Um, real quickly, the, the valley of Gibeon. In Joshua 10, there's this cool story where the Joshua is leading the Israelites in this battle against the, um, the Amorites. And, and they start winning, but the sun's going down. And so Joshua... Praise to the Lord. Lord, make the sun stand still so we can see to defeat our enemies. And he does. So he he says, basically, you know, just as I delivered in an amazing way against your enemies back in the valley of Gibeon, now I'm going to do that against you. He will be stirred up as in the valley of Gibeon to do his task, his unusual task, and to work his work, his extraordinary work. And now do not carry on as scoffers or your fetters. You know what a fetter is? Yeah, it's like um, a manacle, right? It's the when you handcuff your feet and you're, yeah. It's like chains. It's a way to bind a prisoner. Uh. He says, do not carry on as scoffers or your fetters or your chains, we'll put it that way, will be made stronger. For I have heard from the Lord God of hosts of decisive destruction on all the earth. He says, if you carry on scoffing, mocking God, your chains are going to be even stronger. And the Lord is going to bring destruction on those who do this. That's a scary thing. One of the scariest verses in, in the Bible to me is when it says that we will give an account for every idle word, every word we've spoken. I have said a lot of words in my life, and that worries me. Um, I know I've said a lot of dumb things, you know. But he says people that are scoffing him, uh, justice is going to be served, right? Uh, verse 23 Give ear and hear my voice, listen and hear my words. Does the farmer plow continually to plant seed? Does he continually turn and harrow the ground? Does he not level its surface and sow dill and scatter cumin and plant wheat and rose, barley in its place and rye within its area? 
for his God instructs and teaches him properly. For Dill is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is the cartwheel driven over cumin. But Dill is beaten out with a rod and cumin with a club. I, sure, whatever you say, I have no idea how cumin and dill and all that stuff is handled. Where's Dave Perkins when you need him? Um, uh, but basically, different types of crops are harvested and processed differently, right? A good farmer knows how to treat each crop properly. And so the whole point is that God knows what each of us needs, and he, and he doesn't treat us all the same. Verse 28, grain for bread is crushed. Indeed, uh, he does not continue to thresh it forever because the wheel of his cart and his horses eventually damage it. He does not thresh it longer. This also comes from the Lord of hosts, who has made his counsel wonderful and his wisdom great. So, the, the main point, right, is that you aren't going to find someone who can give you a better plan, better advice, than the Lord. So why would you seek it out from anyone other than him? Right? Uh, it, it doesn't pay to treat crops differently than how they're supposed to be treated. So, a, you know, a good farmer would use the plan that works. There's a song that I, you may know that says, uh, you search the world over and never will you find another name under heaven to ease your troubled mind. We're going to go back and hit one verse, and we'll close this out. Isaiah 28, verse 12. So we just kind of read past this earlier. It says, He who said to them, Here is rest, give rest to the weary. And here is repose. But they would not listen. Jesus says this in Matthew 11, verse 28. He says, Come to me, all who are weary, and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Look, if you've been making some bad choices in your life, what would, what would it look like if What would it look like if uh, you trusted the Lord more in that area where you've been making bad choices? What would it look like if you did it his way for a day, for a week? I bet it would look different. I bet you would have a little more rest. And uh, we'll leave it at that. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you so much that, uh, that you still offer peace and rest uh, that that we can't find any other way. Uh, Lord, we just pray that we would learn to trust you more, that we would uh, quit taking the advice of the world and lean into your word and let you direct our paths. God, we just pray tonight that, um, that where, we've been, uh, where we've been skeptical, where we've uh, been following the lie, that we would... Uh, just turn from it and turn to the truth. Lord, we pray for your blessing on your people, and we pray you come and come quickly. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, ready?
break.